Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the Catholic response along the U.S.-Mexico border. My name is Louis Hotop. And I'm Brian Strasberger. We're a pair of Jesuit priests missioned to the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. We're not from the border, but we live here now. This podcast will highlight some of the work that the Catholic Church and others are doing to address the needs on the border, as well as explore immigration topics from the perspective of Catholic social teaching. Let's begin. Vamos! Our topic this week is Call to Family, Community, and Participation. We will be interviewing Ofelia de los Santos, who is the director of the Jail Ministry Program here in the Diocese of Brownsville, which includes detention centers for migrants who are unaccompanied minors. Stay tuned for that interview, but first, let's talk about our Sunday afternoon Masses at San Felipe Parish. San Felipe Parish is located in Brownsville in uh, Cameron Park, which is a, a small community. People say that it's like living in Matamoros, but in, in the United States. And we have a pastor there, Father Tony, who is super, super good to us, really has invited us to join in him and his ministry. And one of the main things he do, does, one of the big things he does is, is work with these young migrants who are in detention centers. Yeah, he's a Marist priest from New Zealand who spent a lot of years in Latin America, so speaks Spanish fluently. And he's gotten in touch with the local detention centers around the area that house these unaccompanied minors. So an unaccompanied minor is a migrant who has come to the border uh, with a non-parental, either as a minor under the age of 18 or with a non-parental family member. So you might be traveling with a sibling who's over 18, or you might be traveling with aunts or uncles or cousins or something like that. Or in some cases, it might be a, it might be a 16, 17-year-old kid traveling alone from Central America. But the bottom line is the kids who qualify as unaccompanied minors could be very young children up to 17-year-olds. And when they present themselves at the border, uh, the U.S. Migration Services will detain them in order to verify the identity of people that they're being released to here in the country. So they're held in the detention centers while uh, family members in the U.S. are contacted to try to get them placed somewhere. So that's where, and there's a, a dozen or more of these centers stretched through the Rio Grande Valley. And Father Tony's been in touch with them and said, hey, you know what? Our parish would love to have them come over and join us for Mass on Sunday afternoons. So they come over. There are these Dominican sisters there. There's a band there. There's always music and dancing and singing, all, all to prepare the kids for Mass and kind of have to create a comfortable environment. And a lot of these children are coming from different centers. So, so they're kind of packed into their own houses within the church. And then, you know, one of the sisters gets up and says, oh, what about this group from San Benito? And then they all cheer. And then another group from another place, they all cheer. So it's a great, it's a great way to build some sense of community outside the walls of these centers that they're in pretty much 24-7 until they get out to go to the church. It's the one time of the week that they leave the center is when they come to the church. So we start off with singing, and then we'll celebrate Mass with them. And afterwards, volunteers from the parish uh, hand out food for them to eat. So it might be a taco or a hot dog or a slice of pizza with some cake and a soda. It's 
it's the uh, most extravagant meal I think these kids get to eat during the week. So I always talk to them afterwards. I'm like, you know, you got to love coming to church. You know, you get to pray and praise God and eat a slice of pizza and have some Coke. I mean, who doesn't like that? Like, who doesn't like Cake that? in church. Is, exactly. And dancing and singing. This is <laughs> this is what I dreamed about as a child. <laughs> this is why I wanted to be a priest. <laughs> That's not everyone's uh, Sunday experience, but for these kids, I think it's a great thing. We get one to 200 uh, kids coming from the centers on a typical Sunday afternoon. And so Father Louie and I are kind of in a routine where we uh, trade off weeks of who's presiding at the Mass. And... Uh, Meanwhile, the other one will kind of park in a pew in the back corner and be available for confessions. So how's that experience been for you so far, Louis? Well, so far we've described the situation. So there's singing, dancing, mass going on, quite a lot of noise. And usually the confessions are over in a corner by like the little kids who are making a lot of noise themselves. So, so it's pretty chaotic. And then imagine being me, not having the greatest Spanish in the world, and a 13-year-old from Nicaragua comes over with a mask on, and she is going to confession speaking only in Spanish. And now, all of a sudden, I've got to figure out what she's saying and and what I need to say in return while all of this is going on. So it's always I'm always sweating during it. I'm, <laughs> I'm always, like, super nervous that I need to say the right thing. And so sometimes, sometimes I prepare little statements to say that are kind of general, but that we all need to hear, Mm, you know? So I want to say something like, you know, God is so merciful and always merciful, and his mercy is is in every moment of every day, except when you kind of translate what I'm saying, like, la misericordia de Dios es muy grande, (laughs) But the the mercy of God is, it's big. It's It's a big mercy. It's very big. That mercy, so big. It's the biggest. (laughs) (laughs) And it's in you and in me and your heart is big like God's mercy is big. (laughs) So that's basically what I say most times. And I'm getting better now. There's there's quite a, I have a little bit more comfort now, but especially at the beginning, it was these very simple statements. And sometimes the kid would look back at me and be like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? What? And you know, it's it's the it's an environmental thing. You know, you're doing the best you can, but it's not like you're sitting in some confessional booth and you're able to have kind of a a, a good sense of what the person's saying. It's like if you can pick up every other word. I mean, I, look, my Spanish is a little bit more advanced than yours, I would say, on a lot of levels. But you know, a kid talking in a mask, trying to talk in a quiet voice because there are other kids nearby and there's music and. And mass hap- I mean, it's it's not the easiest situation. It's tough. <laughs> it's tough. And I always I always leave feeling a little demoralized. But then there is usually one or two experiences with them where they know what's going on. They they can see that I don't. I'm not totally tapped into everything that they're saying. And then they'll slow down and, and explain it very clearly. And we have a great moment in in confession. You know, as best we can. And you know what the the big thing is, and this is what Father Tony told us when we first got there, the big thing is they want to tell you, they want to tell someone that they miss their family and they want to pray for their family. So that's what we end up doing most of the time. Like 
usually it's not even a full confession. I'm I'm always looking for some content in there, you know, to maybe you said a bad word or something, and then we're like, I'm like, okay, yeah, we can do that. But but almost always they focus on their family, how much they miss their parents, how they regret not telling their their grandmother that they didn't, you know, they didn't tell her that she was leaving or they were leaving. So it's it's certainly it's certainly a, a time to really sit with them in in the rawness of their experience as as unaccompanied minors. It really is a privileged space. I mean, uh, all joking aside, a lot of times they're they're opening up their hearts about some really heavy things that they're carrying, uh, often related to being separated from their family and loved ones. They're in the center sometimes for a month or two. They can only call family every eight days, I think is the standard, Dep- depends on the center, but uh, you can imagine how difficult that could be for some, of, for some of the young kids. And some of them, yeah, made, made decisions on their own to leave or were helped by other family members and not everyone was in agreement about these decisions. And so for anyone, I mean, yeah, family, those kind of decisions, being separated and distant from them, it's just a lot to carry. And that's a lot of what they're bringing with them. For sure. And, uh, you know, one other, many, many of the young women, sometimes they'll come and not many, but there are quite a few who are pregnant who come in. And, and even during our time there, there have been some births in the centers. And that, what a great time, you know, you get to see these like little babies come in and, and they're always, you know, to see these young mothers really take care of them is, is a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it's a, it's a jarring situation to see even. I mean, you imagine the difficulties of, of going through pregnancy and delivering a baby and then to do it with literally no family members with you because you might be in the center and taken to a local hospital and do the delivery. What a gift and blessing a, a, a newborn child is, but certainly a difficult circumstances. But sometimes that can lead to, uh, you know, moments that catch us by surprise at mass. Like when I was processing in a couple weeks ago and Father Tony grabs me right as I'm about to begin mass and he says, oh yeah, we'll do a, we'll do a, a, a blessing and presentation of the babies at the end of it. And I'm like, what, is, what does that mean? I don't, I don't know what that means. I'm, that's not in the book. It's not in the book. We don't have a right for that. <laughs> I, took, I took classes on this stuff and I've never seen that before. So you go, you go into the mass and it's just lingering in the back of my mind. I was like, I have no idea what this is going to be. I don't know how this is going to go. And sure enough, we get to the end of the Mass uh, before the final blessing, and he, he like, is flagging me down, and he's bringing up these two young, two young mothers, teenagers, with their babies, with their newborn babies. And he takes them up, and he has them stand right in front of the tabernacle, facing the tabernacle. And I'm like, I don't really know what to do now. And look, improv prayers in Spanish is not my forte. It's something that I'm still growing in. So I'm kind of improv some prayers, and they're facing the tabernacle, and he's like, okay, now uh, now have him turn around and, and then do the blessing. I was like, didn't I just do the blessing? Uh, turn him <laughs> How around. Many blessings are How many there? Blessings are part of this. What is this supposed to be like? So I just roll with it and give him an extra blessing. We clap and and then afterwards he explained. I mean, he had this whole thing in his head that he does. He's like, yeah, usually when I have him facing the tabernacle, I speak to Jesus on their behalf of here are your faithful that have come and they want to get to know you. And then I turn around, do the blessing. I was like, yeah, that would have been great yeah, yeah. if I knew that. <laughs> in my whole job this time while Brian is sweating, I, I had to hold these little knit booties <laughs> and figure out which of the babies was a boy and which was a girl because one was pink and one was blue. And I'm pretty sure I got it wrong. <laughs> you had one job, Louis, one job. 
But that was that's certainly, you know, sometimes we have these times where you're like grateful the other person is presiding. And I think this is one mm-hmm. of those times, Louis, where you're like, Oh yeah. I'm glad it's Brian today. Oh yeah, totally. I don't know what I would have done. I've been like, uh, Brian, get up here. <laughs> <laughs> but I think all these stories are revelatory when we're talking about our topic for the day. Call to family, community, and participation. Uh, you think about the experience of unaccompanied minors. Kids under the age of 18, I mean, we, we see kids sometimes that are three, four, five years old, uh, although I would say the majority are a bit older than that, but the experience of being separated from their family, staying in the center, the experience of a young pregnant teenager giving birth to a child without their family around. Uh, when we talk in the Catholic faith about the importance of family uh, as this central building block of society and culture, we can see how the system that we have wounds that and damages that. And, you know, we can talk about family separation policies that could be enacted, but in a lot of ways, our current immigration system functions to to find ways to keep families separated, even if it's for weeks or months at a time. So we're grateful to Ophelia for coming in and, and speaking to us, especially for the stories that she tells. I will say one of the stories she tells around the middle is a little difficult to listen to. So uh, definitely just just to be ready for that, that there that there are some difficult stories, but that's also a part of the reality that we want to show here is uh, that people on both sides of the border end up in some really difficult crisis situations. So uh, just to be ready for that, but very grateful to Ophelia for joining us. That's right. We're excited to have her on here. So without further ado, let's bring in Ophelia de los Santos. to have with us this week on the Jesuit Border Podcast, Ophelia de los Santos. She's a director of the jail ministry program here for the Diocese of Brownsville. She also has a few other hats that she wears, directing the Diocese of Brownsville Immigration Services, the Office of Stewardships and Grants, and is the CRS liaison for the diocese. So welcome to our podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, maybe just a first question to start things off. Uh, Maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview of what uh, what the work is that you do in terms of the jail ministry program, and especially as it relates to the migrant situation here on the border. Sure. Well, um, I began working for the diocese in 2012 uh, as director of jail ministry. Uh, there had only been two other directors before. The ministry was about 17, 18 years old by that time. And uh, I came um, from being retired as as an attorney and uh, spending a lot of time going to daily mass and doing the things that you never have time for when you work and have children. So um, I really enjoyed working for Sister Norma at Catholic Charities. That's where the office was. And then later, jail ministry was moved to the pastoral offices in 2015. And um, it involved visiting uh, anyone that we could in at least 35 to 37 
facilities that we had then. We've grown. Now we're about 40. At that time, when I started in 2012, there were only four facilities that dealt with uh, unaccompanied minors, which is the legal term that immigration uses for the children that are coming from Central America. Today we have 16 and growing. Jail mm. uh, ministry became bigger. Uh, when I started going to become a prison minister, they wanted me for the juveniles, but the juveniles are really hard. And I said, give me the adults. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started doing that. But also that what had happened very personally in my life was I had had to get my own son out of jail at one point in college. And that was a very painful experience. Thank God I was a lawyer, but to have to walk him through it, and it's, 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 I don't know how, how other lawyers do it, but for me, you know, I just, it was a real learning experience. So it was no longer just uh, the young people that I was representing, it was my son, you know? So I did for others what I did for my son. So it just became part of who I was at that time. The theme for our episode this week in Catholic social teaching is the call to family, community, and participation. I wonder if you could comment on the impact you've seen in your ministry and from your personal experience that the system of incarceration or even migrant detention that we have in our country and how it impacts the family dynamics of the people involved. I think one of the most painful things for me as a jail ministry director is going into the, the children's detention centers. I myself, probably if I were a volunteer, could not handle being a volunteer. And I say that because I have seven grandkids and three children. One of my son was one of, that still suffers today um, with his life. And so I, I can do adults. I can do women and men. But the children just bring me to tears. And you can't be an effective volunteer if you're there crying. But what I have seen is a destruction of families uh, among especially the immigrants. Now, my father himself was an immigrant. When he crossed the river illegally in 1945, there was no such thing as a wall or the migra waiting for you when you crossed over. Um, and so he came over and provide, and he had a support group already established. Many of them already have someone here. And so all my life working with my dad or living with my dad and, and my mom and my, there's five of us, there was always someone staying with us, crossing over, okay? Some of them legally and some of them not. So that was already part of my experience. Um, there was always room for one more. What I see today is very different than when my dad crossed over. Today, it, there's this sense that we're overcrowded and that Who's, go who's going to take them all in? Are we supposed to take them all in? And even people like myself who are first generation, in my own church, I get questions like, Ophelia, are they ever going to stop coming? And what are we supposed to do? And, you know, and I get so tired of having to explain circumstances that created this, our own country and its involvement in Latin America. And, you know, I took Latin American studies. But, but, the, but the whole thing boils down to effective catechesis. If we catechize our people, if we explain the theology of migration, which I heard an excellent presentation from a, a professor from Notre Dame at one of our meetings. It was beautiful. You could probably still find it online, the, the, the theology of migration. And that is that, that people move. People are always moving. 
always trying to improve themselves, always trying to discover other areas, uh, always trying to explore. It's in our nature. That's how God made us. So who are we that live here and are comfortable to say, that's it, uh, close the door after me? We cannot do that. We've got to, if we really live the gospel, we've got to welcome them. And I'm not talking about this thing about drug dealers. Okay, that's going to happen regardless of our laws. They're going to find a way to come. We have law enforcement agencies that can take care of that, okay? Immigration cannot possibly do all that screening. They'll do their best. But when you see these children crossing the border and being picked up and, and, and it, they're tired, they're hungry, what does the Statue of Liberty say? Send me your hungry, your poor, your downtrodden, yearning to be free. We're living the Statue of We're living Ellis Island right here on the border. Perhaps one of the clearest assaults, if you will, on family life in terms of immigration policy has been the, the family separation that was taking place on the border a few years ago. I wonder if you could share a little bit about your experience in your office and what was taking place along the border here and, and how, how you experienced that, that situation and how you thought to try to respond to it. When I was in law school, I was taught that there was the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And so in immigration policy and, and the laws that we have in immigration, they allow for prosecution of misdemeanors when it comes to immigration. It was never enforced because it was always understood that immigration was going to happen no matter what. When the surges of people started coming from Central America, the former administration found a way to try to stop the flow. I'm not faulting them for that. It's the, it's the way they went about it. And let me tell you that we didn't know that separation of families was happening until a federal prosecutor called her neighbor who worked for the diocese and told him, you all have to do something. You have to talk to the bishop. They're taking children away from, fam from their families and they're putting the families in jail because if you're accused of a misdemeanor and you're convicted, you go to jail. Necessarily, the child cannot go with you, so it's got to be put in foster care. Okay, and that's exactly what they decided to do was to try to stop the flow. They started prosecuting misdemeanor uh, immigration cases. So... That person came to me as, uh, and said, uh, we need to let the bishop know about this, and I'm going to send an email, and da-da-da. So bishop calls me and says, Can you, do you know anything about this going on? I said, no, I had no idea. They were keeping it a secret. He said, well, find out. So I did. I called that same federal prosecutor. I knew her from, from when we were lawyers at the courthouse, and she told me exactly what was going on. And, of course, her hands were tied. You know, she could lose her job. So... We, we, knew, we found out it was real, and we organized a CRS walk immediately. And that's like the, the way you get media attention is you do a march. Uh, we called it a walk. Um, and it was a walk expressing concern over the separation of families. It took us a while to organize it, like less than a week. But, but that's what I'm saying. On the day that we're there and the rabbi is there, the imam is there, our two bishops are there, people from all over, 2,000 people on a rainy day like today, gathered at the, uh, across from the federal courthouse in McAllen. And, and we got word right then that the president was rescinding that order because of all the media attention. So sometimes we have to, in our social justice arm of the church, we have to step out 
and protest when things are going on that affect families. But we do have a lot of good people here who, who realize that humanity is hurting right now, and they're at our front door, and we've got to do something about it. Or we shouldn't call ourselves Christians. And I think, uh, you know, very often what we hear in the rhetoric and the, and the picture of, of migration and the news and things like that is, is really this, this image of who a migrant is that's not true. And very often it is families, it is young children, it is young women, pregnant women, very vulnerable people, older people in the camp that we work in in Reynosa. The amount of older people and children who are in that camp is really striking. And so it, it rained the other day and and the the camp is flooded and there's mud everywhere and they're cold and they're getting sick and, and all of those things. You know, a child gets sick naturally, but a child gets sick and lives in a in a tent in an overpopulated camp now you have suddenly a real crisis on your hands and it can it is a tinderbox it could change so quickly and so those images i think that you're providing and that the stories that we tell are so key to understanding the actual reality down here instead of this two-dimensional one that's often represented and so one question that i have is 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 there a story or a particular a particular case that you've followed or that a particular person that you've worked with that you would like to raise their story up as an example of 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 what you see here as an example of of what people have to confront when they when they cross the border or when they begin the asylum process Yes there's one particular uh, young man I'm guessing that he was close to 17 um, if not 17 already, that's the limit, you know, for a child here. After that, they have to be moved to adult um, camps. But this this young man um, was trafficked, and he was part of a human trafficking ring, and, and they were bringing over these young people at that certain age, boys and girls, to prostitute them. And I met him because um, he happened to be visiting a monastery in our area, the Benedictine Monastery. And he had quite a story. I noticed right away when I saw him that he had a huge scar across his neck. And uh, his story, and he was dying to tell his story. And he had actually gotten asylum because he was going to be um, a witness for the FBI against this uh, trafficking ring uh, uh, somewhere in Cameron County. I won't say where. But he was held at a ranch, and then they would have these semi-trailers, and they would be in there with several beds, and then they would just bring men in, and they would pay to come in. And they would drug them up, the, the young men and the young women, and service as many men as they could in one night. And he told me about how much worse it was on the women than on him. I mean, and, and, and then one night he happened to get away and run into the next, next ranch for help because they caught up with him and they slit his throat. But because he was faster, they couldn't get deep enough. So he was bleeding and he has a horrible scar, but a rancher next door helped him and brought him to the hospital. And then from there, later he came to the monastery and was telling this story. And I realized then that it wasn't just um, children we have a lot of teenagers that are being used for, uh, and I'm not sure how many children are used for that, but it, it broke my heart. Um, he, was, he was happy. 
He was happy because he was in the United States. His scar had healed. He was going to be getting a special visa. It's called a U visa when you become um, a victim of a crime. Um, and he was happy. He was joyful. And he was very Catholic. And he was so appreciative of what the nuns were doing for him and what other people were doing for him. And he lasted here about three or four years. So I got to visit him more than once. And I just remember thinking, this guy, I mean, look at everything that has happened to him. And he's like on his way to healing because church picked him up. Church took care of him. Church gave him hope again, you know. It was just an incredible, incre I'll never forget him. Part of the Catholic Church's reality here is that this is one of the poorest dioceses in the country and also one of the areas of greatest need in the country. So a very a diocese with limited resources is having to respond to the greatest need that that we can think of. And and it's 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 the migrant situation, it's it's all these other situations, it's the colonias where there are so many undocumented folks or folks who are really struggling that that need basic necessities, staples like food, staples or or certain resources like gotta fix my roof because it's been leaking for a year or something like that. And it's amazing to me how much those communities rely on the church and other other services uh, from other churches just to, just to meet those basic needs. Um, our parishes have been around a long time, and some we have a lot of roof leaks. We have bell tower leaks. We have uh, you know all kinds of renovation problems because again, if you're in a poor community, there's not enough money just to pay the bills, right? So we're always in need of outside grant grantors uh, to come to our aid, and thank God that they're out there. I always try to acknowledge them. Now that I'm in the grants department, you know, you learn a little bit more of what we do. I, I think because I have those four areas, CRS, I want to say that CRS, the two parishes that raise more money during the Rice Bowl campaign during Lent are our two poorest parishes. Uh, San Felipe de Jesus, in Cameron Park, that's Father O'Connor, and Father Wilhelm Paulo, Father Paulo Wilhelm, in Roma, Our Lady of Refuge. They are always they raise eight to nine thousand dollars each. <laughs> Incredible giving, and it really boils down. The poorest people are the ones that give the most. Isn't that incredible? It is really incredible. The the needs down here are great and the resources are thin, which means it places a lot of responsibility on individuals to do heroic efforts. And I think, Ophelia, you're a great example of this, uh, saying yes to this this job and this this kind of new career, second, third, fourth career for you, uh, <laughs> but, but doing wonderful work. And I wonder, is there anyone in particular that's a model that you look to that's been an inspiration in your life and, and that you uh, turn to when you're, when you're thinking about uh, what inspires you in your ministry here? That would be my dad. 
Mr. Juan Garza, who was brave enough to come and build a better life for himself and then brought every single member of his large family to live in the great United States. Yeah, only one aunt stayed behind. She had her own little store. But my dad was my first mentor, told me, be the first one at work and the last one to leave, and you'll never go wrong. Um, he was so proud of his family and everything that we accomplished, but we've never forgotten it was because of what he did. So yeah, my dad. And then the second person that most affected me and still today is my husband, uh, 53 years. Uh, just an incredible person, a migrant uh, that would migrate up north uh, to make money for his, his schooling and uh, achieved his doctorate and very well-known professor at UTRGV and still working today. Both of us, I think, are just, we don't want to retire. <laughs> I think the Lord just uses us, you know, and I thought I was going to law school for my, my, my family, for myself, to satisfy my own needs. But in the long run, I see that the Lord had a bigger plan for me. And I'm here now because I became a lawyer. I'm here now in a, at a time where I can help the diocese best because of everything I learned in my law practice. So I thank God. And, uh, of course, his blessed mother is one of my particular favorites. I, uh, she's my go-to gal. Our Lady of Guadalupe, for everything, every single thing. I promised her a long time ago because of the sufferings of my son that, that if, if she would help me and go to her son with my son's needs, that I would help her sons wherever they were. And so I'm living that promise right now. Thank you, Ophelia, for, for your witness to the gospel, for your willingness to, to use your gifts for the good of others. It's it's an inspiration to us and, and, and really a great blessing to have you join us on the Jesuit Border Podcast. This is a, a new initiative on our part, and, and we're trying to get things off the ground, but it is really the witness of people who are, who are willing to really lay their lives down. You know, you've, you've given your all to this effort, and, and that really comes through, and, and we're just grateful that you took the time to be with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you guys so much. Well, that's our episode for this week. We're grateful to Ofelia de los Santos for joining us. This podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. We'll see you next week on the Jesuit Border Podcast. Nos vemos!